Well, that's uh, quite a passage that we read in our scripture reading this morning, where Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. It's a sixfold charge that Paul puts Timothy under just to preach the word. And, and, you know, I just, I guess that's just, that's what we try to do here at Grace Bible Fellowship. Just preach God's word, simple, explain it to you. That's the only thing that has power. That's the only thing that's going to work. Um, the, all the, all the powers in the word of God. And so anyway, I just, that just really stuck out to me this morning. Thanks, Kevin and Tom, for leading us in song. Uh, We're in Matthew chapter 9, and if you would, turn in your Bible there, Matthew chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 9 to 13 this morning. The Word of God says this, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, brothers and sisters, you know, I, I don't know if I can speak for you. I can certainly speak for me that I've been very encouraged with uh, our church, with the way that the Lord's working in our church. Um, you know, really, I, I think at the Christmas banquet, it really hit me. That was a, a huge highlight just to see almost 200 of you that, are, that had really almost every single one of us came and a few other folks. But for me, what was really sweet was to look out and, and think, as I kind of you know, know most of you, at least to some extent, and, and maybe even to some extent, what the Lord's doing in your life, and to be able to look out and see that the Lord is, is working in your lives and that you are growing. And, and for, the, for the most part, at least as far as I know, the past almost two years that I've been here, that you have all been growing in the Lord and maturing in Him. And so the Lord is adding people to our church and, and the Lord is growing us. We're spiritually maturing and it's, it's awesome. That's, that's the goal of the church. The, the goal is for us to grow to be like Christ and to reach people with the gospel. And, and the Lord seems to be doing that in our midst. But there's dangers when things are going well. The Christian life is a, a life lived in a spiritual battle. We wrestle, Paul says, not with flesh and blood, but with principalities or against principalities and powers and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And in a battle, in a war, there's always dangers. 
In a spiritual war against the devil and the world and even our own remaining sin in our flesh, we, we always need to be alert. And one danger I see when, when things seem to be going well and when we're growing in holiness and growing in putting off sins and growing in our knowledge of God and of Christ, and when we're growing in likeness to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the dangers that I see is this, that that we might forget who we were as sinners and who we are called to reach. You know, as we grow, we get, we get comfortable. And we get comfortable with others who are like-minded. And we learn to enjoy fellowship and, and, and enjoy being with people who are at similar stages of spiritual maturity. Or with people who share similar convictions regarding biblical doctrine. It's just, it's just comfortable. It's nice. It's easy to, to visit with people like that. And it's, it's good to enjoy that fellowship. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's, it's awesome to have spiritual fellowship and we need rich spiritual encouragement with one another. Hebrews 3.13 says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so we're, we're to encourage one another and, and minister to one another in that way. We, we need each other. But again, one of the dangers as we enjoy each other's encouragement is that we might develop the pharisaical attitude towards others. The Pharisees, they thought they were more righteous than others. They thought that, that they thought of themselves as really the pinnacle of religious observation in Israel. They, they thought they had kind of mastered religion. They thought they pleased God above other people. They included others who weren't as committed as them or weren't as knowledgeable as them or weren't as spiritual as them. And so they kind of elevated themselves and separated themselves from others. Luke 18.9 talks about the some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And in the following verses, the, the prime example of those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt was the Pharisee and the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee prayed to himself and, and said something like, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, like these sinners, like even like that tax collector over there. And so there was this kind of pride and separation and looking down on others. The Pharisees thought they pleased God and they despised others who they thought of as sinners. They wouldn't associate with them. They wouldn't relate with them. They wouldn't hardly try to reach them unless they showed the Pharisees that what the Pharisees thought were signs of repentance. Until, until you kind of made a step towards being like us, we're not going to have anything to do with you. Their attitude was, you repent first and become just like us, and then we will teach you, and then we will fellowship with you, and then we'll have something to do with you. But until then, you are unclean to us. And it'd be easy, I, I think, it'd be easy for us to kind of fall into that kind of an attitude, that kind of a, a hard-hearted, proud, arrogant thinking where we forget that we were sinners and where we forget that we're called to reach sinners. And one of the best passages to help us fight against that pharisaical spirit is the passage we just read this morning. This is going to help us understand 
Jesus' mission and our mission? To call sinners to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And like a doctor goes to the sick, we are to go to sinners to offer them the healing that's available in Jesus Christ. We of all people should have compassion for sinners, not contempt. We should love sinners, not loathe them. And we should desire mercy for them, not misery on them. But it's easy to lose sight of these things, and it's easy to forget that we were sinners. And even having been saved and now seeking righteousness, we can still say in some sense that we are sinners. And so let's get into this text and see our Lord's love and mercy and compassion towards sinners. I, I kind of just divided the text into to two parts with, with kind of two parts in each part. And first we're going to see the calling and celebration in verses 9 and 10. Calling and celebration. Look at verse 9. Again, Jesus... Uh, sorry, sorry, verse 9 says, As Jesus passed on from there... He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And here we meet for the first time the author of this gospel, Matthew. Matthew was sitting at the tax booth. Now Mark and Luke both call him Levi. And it was common in those days to have multiple names, often two names. And so it seems that this man was known as Levi Matthew. Matthew became one of the twelve, and in the listing of disciples, in, in all of the Gospels, in the listing of the twelve, and in the book of Acts, he's always listed as Matthew. And that same Matthew, history tells us, is the one who wrote this Gospel. From as early of, of manuscripts as I know of, the, the, the heading in this Gospel has always been according to Matthew. And Matthew, according to verse 9, he was sitting at the tax booth. And if you just flip over in your Bible to Matthew chapter 10, and if you look at verse 2, the names of the 12 apostles were these. First Simon, who's called Peter, and we can kind of skip over then to verse 3, and we see Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. And so Matthew was a tax collector. He was sitting in the tax booth when he he was called, and he is a tax collector. Now, to be a a tax collector, you had to purchase a tax franchise. And that tax franchise entitled you to tax the people. And a franchise required you to collect a set amount of money for Rome that you were required to pay year by year to Rome. But anything that you collected above that was just pure profit. So it was a profitable franchise if you could afford to buy one. But the system opened the doors to massive corruption. And the corruption, the bribery, the intimidation, I should note that the tax collectors had the use of the Roman army for protection and for intimidation. And, and they, they used the army to help them collect their tax quota. And so the system led to massive corruption. And tax collectors were despised for their position. They had the authority to, to search your belongings. They could open your mail, your documents, even sealed documents. And they could do almost whatever they wanted to do. There was really no limits on this. They could do whatever they wanted to see if you had any profitable business going on. 
that they could tax. <coughs> Matthew's tax booth would have either been along the, the main highway kind of go, leading to Rome from Israel or maybe by the Sea of Galilee taxing goods that came over across the sea. But wherever he was, the Matthew would have been a despised tax collector. And the Pharisees and, and probably most Jews would have despised tax collectors. You know, nobody likes paying taxes. And um, especially when you have a sense of the corruption that's going on. Now, there, there might be some liberal folks who think it's a great thing to pay taxes, but for the most part, we just generally don't want to pay taxes. But when you know that the, 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 the taxes that you're paying with, uh, from your hard-earned money is, is just going to line the tax collector's pockets, that makes it even harder. But then add to the fact that the Jews believed that they should have been an independent nation under God. <coughs> they were God's chosen nation, and they weren't to be subject to anyone, especially the Gentiles, but, but they were. And so they were, they were under this Roman occupation. And so tax collectors like Matthew were, were viewed as traitors. They were traitors to God and to their fellow Jews. So tax collectors were, were viewed as traitors. They betrayed God. They betrayed their country and, and they did it all for money. But they made a lot of money. They, they were, they were the wealthy of society. And so Matthew is quite likely very wealthy. Although the, the wealthiest of the tax collectors probably wouldn't have worked their own tax booth. The, the wealthiest of them would have hired out other people, maybe like Matthew, to, to work the tax booth. But anyways, that gives us a sense of Matthew. He was rich. He wasn't a respectable, God-fearing Jew, or he wouldn't have been a tax collector. And also, when we look at his friends in, in verse 10, you can tell a, a lot about a person based on their friends. Godly people have godly friends, usually. Sinful people have sinful pr- friends for the most part. And of course, the exception here is Jesus, who is reaching out to sinners in this passage. But, but Matthew has friends who are tax collectors and sinners. And that's about all we know about Matthew. That's really all we know. He was rich. And he was likely a, a sinful tax collector man. Jesus saw Matthew and he said to him, follow me. He said, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now Matthew was in Capernaum and he would have, he would have had to have, we'd think, at least to know, know something about Jesus. Jesus had healed many people, even the whole surrounding area we've seen. And so Jesus was well known in Capernaum and crowds would follow him wherever he was. And so perhaps Matthew had heard some of Jesus' preaching. We don't know for sure. All we know is that Jesus saw Matthew in the tax booth and said, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And so Matthew focuses on just this very simple call of Jesus where he says, follow me. And this is the call that every Christian must answer. It's a call to follow Jesus Christ. Christianity isn't so much a religion. It's not a set of do's and don'ts. It's it's not so much a set of doctrines to believe. Christianity has to do with following a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now to follow this person, it's going to require you from turning away from certain things. 
You can't follow Jesus without at the same time turning away from many sins and desires and and turning your life over to him. To follow this person, you're going to have to get to know him, which includes doctrine. You're going to have to learn something about him, which is doctrine. But above all, Christianity is following this person, the living, resurrected person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Following him means taking on his way of living. It means taking on his mission, his character, his priorities, following after him. It means patterning, patterning our lives after his life. And so his mission becomes our mission and his priority becomes our priority. And so we ask, well, what was his priority? It was to glorify God with his life. And what was his mission? Well, we see it in this text to seek and save sinners and to call them to follow him. And this is why we say Christianity is a relationship. It's because we come to know this person and follow him and we learn from him how to live and we learn from him how to think and how to feel and what to love and what to hate. We, we know him and we follow him with our whole lives and he influences every aspect of our lives as we come to, to know this Christ, this great savior and our God. And Matthew heard that call to follow and he followed Christ. All the way in his life, he followed him to his eventual death. Matthew was likely martyred, although we don't know for sure when or where. In the parallel passage in Luke, Luke tells us that Matthew left everything and followed Jesus. Matthew leaves that out in his gospel, but he left everything. Once you leave that tax booth, there's no going back there. You could go back to fishing or whatever, but when you leave the tax booth, that's, that's going to be it for you. And so he leaves it and that's it. And that's exactly what we're to do as well. Jesus must be number one in our lives. We're to love him above, above everything else, even above our own selves. And there was Matthew raking in the money. He had, it looks like he had many friends. He had uh, tax collectors and sinners as friends, but he left it all behind to follow Jesus Christ. And that tells us that he saw Jesus of greater value than all that he had, and so he followed him. That's what it means to see Jesus as of greater value than everything else and to follow him with our lives. That's what Christianity is. And we're all invited to do the same. And if, if you would, just turn a, a few pages over to Matthew's chapter 16. And look at Matthew 16, 24. Matthew 16, 24 says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If anyone would come after me, if, if anyone, it says there, if anyone, that's the invitation. No matter who we are, or how we sinned, we are invited to come to Jesus and follow Him. If anyone is as open an invitation as possible, Jesus calls us. He says, if anyone would. And this is the same call really that Matthew received. If anyone would come after Him, then the instruction is let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. If anyone would, then you must lose your life and follow Him. 
Matthew 7, 14, we, we talked about the narrow gate and Jesus himself is the narrow gate. Following him is the hard way that leads to life. And in a sense, it's hard and costs everything to follow Jesus, but in another sense, it's easy. By grace, our eyes are open to see the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And like Matthew, we leave everything and follow after him. Well, that was Matthew's calling. And, and after, or at some point after, and, and perhaps even on the same day, Matthew invited his friends to come and meet Jesus. There's a little celebration dinner. We saw his calling and now we see this celebration. Maybe this is a, a goodbye to his old friends and, and to their ways and a welcome to his new friends. And many tax collectors and sinners come to this celebration. Those two go together in the New Testament, tax collectors and sinners, tax collectors and sinners. They reclined with Jesus and his disciples. And in those days, to share a meal together was to imply a close fellowship. And this is something that the Pharisees would never do. In their minds, and according to Jewish customs, to eat with tax collectors or other notorious sinners would make them unclean. And that leads then to the second part of our outline. We saw calling and celebration. And now we have number two, complaining and correction. In verses 11 to 13, complaining and correction. Look at verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And we'll just stop there for now. The Pharisees saw this dinner. And, and dinners like this were a community event and uninvited guests were welcome to, to stop by and watch the dinner guests eat and see what they were having for dinner, listen to their conversation. That was kind of the entertainment of the day. Well, who's having dinner tonight? Let's go and, and see what they're talking about, see what they're doing. And it wasn't, it, it was just normal. It wasn't, you know, you weren't unwelcome to do that. And so the Pharisees are, are able to kind of see what's going on. And of course, they're eating outdoors in a a little courtyard area. And so you could gather around and you could see Jesus eating with these sinners. And the Pharisees are offended at this. And so they ask Jesus' disciples about it. And so they they somehow get within earshot of one of the disciples or some of the disciples. And they ask a question. But the question's more of a rebuke than it is really a legitimate question. They don't want to learn anything. They don't want to understand why Jesus is doing this. They want to find fault and accuse Jesus to his disciples. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You can almost kind of hear the, the snarkiness in that, in that question. And they ask with disdain and contempt and they're, they're outraged and offended that Jesus would do this. But in verse 12, when he heard it, he said, and this is Jesus, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And this is a brilliant response by the Lord on so many levels, as really everything that Jesus ever said was. Let's start with what he said in verse 12. Jesus came up with a a little proverb for them in verse 12. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Doctors work with sick people. 
doctors, you know, at least if, if you're like me at all, um, doctors have nothing to do with healthy people. I, I don't go to the doctor unless I'm, unless I'm almost like gonna die, you know, like, then, I, then I wanna go to the doctor, but otherwise, I'm kind of staying away. And then, at least in Jesus' day, that's typically how it worked as well. I think that's how it works in the Canadian medical system. In the U.S. medical system, they do a lot of like checking you before to make sure that you're healthy and doing well. But in Canada, it seems like, or at least, at least it's, maybe it's just me, but I'm only going to the doctor when I'm sicker than I think I can recover on my own. And so doctors just typically, generally speaking, work on sick people. And Jesus is comparing himself to a doctor, a physician. He's a physician of the soul. And as, and as such, his work is with those who are sick of soul. His work is with sinners. Sinners are the ones that have need of Jesus. And we know that he and he alone can forgive sins. We know that he is the mediator between God and man, and he's the only mediator. Only through Jesus Christ can we have access to God. And we're without hope and without God in this world until we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And as the one who came to save his people from their sins, Jesus must interact with sinners. Now we should never think that Jesus reclines with sinners and and fellowships with sinners without a view to making them well. Right? He is a doctor. What kind of doctor would hang around with sick people without treating them of their sickness, right? Doctors don't just hang around with sick people. They try to cure sick people. And Jesus is the same way. He doesn't just fellowship with sinners, but he's working to make them well. Jesus is no derelict doctor. He's a a true physician calling sinners to turn from sin to follow him. But being a spiritual doctor requires ministry to those who need a doctor. Then he says in verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go and learn, he says. Now, that sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? Go and learn. But it's it's probably not as harsh as it sounds to us that this was a a standard rabbinic introduction to tell someone to, to go and, and meditate on a passage of scripture. Go and, go and study and think about it and, and understand how to apply it to your lives. And so that's what he's saying to them. Go and, and meditate on this passage. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It's kind of like go and, go and think about this saying until you understand how to apply it to your life. And they had just called Jesus teacher. And so he's going to be, he's going to kind of fulfill that role. Okay. I'm a teacher. Well, let me teach you something. Go and learn, go and learn something. Go and learn this. The lesson is from Hosea 6, 6. And the, the Hebrew Bible has this, and I'll just, I'll quote it from the ESV for you. It's for, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, steadfast love is the Hebrew word chesed, which, which means covenant loyalty, covenant love, or loyal love. And the idea here is that God desires this covenant loyalty and not just, not just merely sacrifices. God wants His people to be faithful to Him and not just go through the religious motions of the sacrificial system. 
Now, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the, the, the 70, the LXX, translated chesed with a word for mercy. And so that's where Jesus is quoting from, from the Septuagint translation, it would seem. And so when Hosea says, I desire steadfast love, or I desire mercy and not sacrifice, he's not saying that Yahweh doesn't want burnt offerings anymore. He's not saying that, that we should do away with the sacrificial system. The, the idea of a saying like that is one of priority. That when the Hebrew said, I want A and not B, it, it really means I want A more than B. A is more important than B. A first and then B. And so the idea is mercy or steadfast love first and then sacrifice. No, no sacrificing without this covenant loyalty to follow after Yahweh. God always hated it when Israel would offer sacrifices in an external mechanical way. God hates when his people go through religious motions without engaging their hearts in the exercise. And in Hosea's day, Israel performed the sacrificial regulations, but they were disloyal to Yahweh. They went through the motions and they obeyed outwardly, but only by doing the temple sacrifices. Now, Isaiah says a very similar thing, and Isaiah and Hosea were both in the same time, Hosea in Israel, Isaiah in Judah. But Isaiah 29, 13, and the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. And so Hosea and Isaiah both said, God wants the heart and not merely religious rituals. God wants our hearts. And the Pharisees, they were just like what Hosea and Isaiah said. They kept all the rules and they kept all the traditions, but they had no real love for God. And they had no real compassion for sinners. They were more concerned about their own ritual purity than they were with helping people come to know God. And part of the reason for that was that they themselves didn't know God. The Pharisees didn't know God. Now here's part of the brilliance of the Lord's response. He's telling the Pharisees that they are like apostate Israel in Hosea's day. He's showing them that they are just like that. They're doing all of this outward stuff, but they've really missed the heart of the matter. They're making all kinds of religious and, and really empty religious sacrifice, but without their hearts, without love, and without mercy. You see, they were, the Pharisees, the, the spiritual leaders of Israel, were to be physicians. But instead of having mercy on the spiritually sick sinners, they have, they've proven that they themselves are sick and they're in need of a physician. So do you see what the Lord's saying there? By their lack of mercy, they have shown that they themselves are sinners and that they need spiritual medicine. Now what the Lord says next is incredible. Look at verse 13. He says, again, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now notice that little word there, for. For explains the Hosea passage. The, the, the sense here is that Jesus came for the very reason that Hosea spoke about. Yahweh desires mercy and knowledge of God, 
And Jesus came for that purpose. Jesus came to show mercy. And look at the language that he uses. He says, I came. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, he seems to mean that he came to earth. But I don't, I don't know what the Pharisees thought. Maybe they thought I, he came to Matthew's house. But Jesus says, I came. And again, it shows that, that he is the Messiah, that he is God. He understands who he is. Nobody talks like that. I came to call the righteous. He's, he's saying that he came from heaven, that he's the Messiah, that he himself came to fulfill what Isaiah had wanted. Mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus came to call sinners and, and that's where the focus is here. It's on, on this call to sinners. It's not as though he means that, that some people are truly righteous and that he didn't come for them. Jesus knows that none are righteous. No, not one. Jesus came to call sinners. He came to show mercy. He came to heal everyone that would come to him. And in order to come to him, we need to first know that we are sick. If we don't, or if we won't acknowledge our sin, then we'll see no need for a Savior. If we, like the Pharisees, see ourselves as righteous, that's when we're in the most trouble. We will never come to Jesus if we don't see our need. But when we recognize our sin, this is when we have the most hope. And this is super encouraging. When we see our sin, that's when we have the most hope. Look at the text again. Jesus came to save sinners. He came to call sinners, just like he called Matthew. And so if you feel yourself a sinner, then Jesus is the Savior for you. His very purpose for coming is to call these sinners to come to him. And whatever the sin, Jesus stands ready to forgive. So long as we are ready to take him as our Lord and as our physician and to follow after him. Now, by associating with these sinners, Jesus was giving them a chance to see him for who he was. He was giving them an opportunity to repent, to turn from their sin. They weren't influencing him. He was influencing them. They were not making him unclean as the Pharisees thought. Instead, he was inviting them to come to him for cleansing. Now, the Pharisees, they didn't think like that. And so Jesus corrected their thinking. Now, as we seek to apply this to ourselves, we need to do this with wisdom. We're called here to be, to be merciful people. We're called by this passage to love sinners. And to follow Christ, again, is to take His mission to ourselves. If He came to save sinners, then our mission is the same. We are here to be used by Christ to reach sinners with the message of salvation. Don't miss that. That's the, the point of the passage. We are here to be used by Christ to reach sinners with the message of salvation. That's our purpose. We as individuals and, and we as a local church have really two goals. To reach sinners with the good news of salvation in Christ and to see that salvation realized in Christ-like living in the world. To, to see sinners saved and to see them grow to be like Christ. That's the Great Commission, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We should never lose sight of our mission. But with that mission comes challenges. Guess what? Sinners sin. And when they're just saved, notorious sinners have a lot of growth and learning to do. You know, as I think about that, it, it, it'll make us uncomfortable. I, I wish actually that, that I, could, I could take you back 20 years and introduce you to me 20 years ago when I first got saved. You know, or even just a, a short visit with me before I was saved, just so that you could kind of there's a lot of rough edges in sinners when they come to salvation. Some of you know that from your own lives. And it's, it's messy work. Lots of patience and love is going to be needed if we're going to be a, a place where sinners can find healing in the Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of grace and patience and bearing with one another is going to need to happen in this place. A lot of love is needed when helping people grow spiritually. But physicians need to work with sickness. We need to work with sinful people to help them grow to be like Christ. And it's messy work. But still, what a joy to see sinners saved and sanctified. What a, what a great thing when we see people growing in the Lord and being transformed from glory to glory. And that's what we're here for. But as we do this, we need to beware of two pitfalls. On the one hand, we need to be careful ourselves for our righteousness. We need to keep ourselves from temptation and sin. We're to reach sinners, but we're not to, to fall into sin ourselves. We need to ensure that we are the ones influencing others. We're called to be physicians, not sinners, right? We're called to be healers, not, not fall into the, the sin that, that we're trying to save people out of. And so we're to preach the good news to the lost, not be like lost people. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And so there's a sense in which we, we are to avoid bad company. We don't want to corrupt our, our morals, our righteousness. Our goal is to grow in righteousness. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught... In any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now that passage is really towards the brothers, but I think the principle applies just as well to our interactions with unbelievers. We need to, to watch ourselves as we reach to the lost people, lest we too be tempted with their sin. But on the other hand, we need to beware of the pitfall on the other side of the, the pitfall of the Pharisees. They were trying to be so righteous that they actually stopped trying to reach sinners. They wouldn't associate with them and they forgot mercy. They were, they were so worried about being influenced that they didn't even try to reach sinners with the gospel. And so we want to be a hospital for sinners at Grace Bible Fellowship, one where sinners sorry, not one where sinners just hang around, 
That's not the goal. Right? It's not just so that we can have a whole bunch of sinners around here. The, the goal of being a hospital is so that we can offer the cure for sinners, so that sinners can get healed from their sin and their idolatry and learn to follow the Lord Jesus Christ with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so when sinners come here, when, when we start to reach people with the gospel, we don't want to be complaining like the Pharisees. How come this sinner's here and look at that, look at all their needs and look at all their problems? We don't want to be the ones that need correction, but we want to be those who, like our Lord, call sinners to follow Jesus Christ. And if we do that, if, if we continue to preach the gospel and love lost people, I am persuaded that we will see many people come to saving faith and we'll be able to celebrate like our Lord did with Matthew. We'll be able to celebrate the, the salvations and the growth that's happening through our church. Matthew, the tax collector and sinner, became Matthew, the gospel writer saint. And that's the kind of thing that we want to see in our church as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our, our time together in your word. We pray for those, Lord, who are here, that maybe if anyone is here that would, that they, they would follow you. We pray that you would draw them to yourself. And we pray that we would be true followers of Christ, that we would be following him in his mission to reach lost people, that we would be people of mercy, people of, of steadfast covenant love, not only towards you, Lord, but also towards those who are lost. We pray that the, the physician, the Lord Jesus Christ, would heal sinners through us in this place. That you would give us patience and love and, and the kind of life that, that welcomes sinners and, and seeks to help them and bless them, not that seeks to hate them and loathe them and, and have contempt for them, Father. And so we pray that we would be like that. And Father, we pray that we would see many people come to faith here in this place and that we would see us continue to grow in righteousness as we follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.